I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 15. If you're using one of the blue Bibles, it should be on page 214. We take time in the morning and the evening to simply work through various books of the Bible, verse by verse. And in the evenings, we have been working through the book of Judges. And tonight, we come to chapter 15, continuing on the story of Samson. But before I read Judges 15 for us, let us once again ask our Father for his help. Lord, we know that apart from your Holy Spirit, we can hear these words and they will mean nothing to us. And so we pray that you would work, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word, that you would incline our hearts to your word, and that you would satisfy us this evening with your steadfast love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hear now the word of the Lord to you this evening from Judges chapter 15. We read, after some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go in to my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Edom. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? They said, we have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so have I done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. 
Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. Then he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck one thousand men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramath Lehi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En Hakore. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines. 20 years. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the stories in the book of Judges may sound strange, but I want to be clear that they are not allegories. Neither are they moralistic fables. The genre of Judges is historical narrative. Every detail is a true historical fact. These stories, therefore, are intended to recount redemptive history as it unfolded in Israel between the time that they started conquering Canaan to the days of their early monarchy. Are there fantastical-sounding elements in these stories? Yes, but not because they are made up. It is because they are miraculous. But with this being said, the author who wrote these stories down is not merely trying to teach you a history lesson. He's trying to teach you a theological lesson. And the primary lesson that we have been learning over and over in this book is that God is unrelentingly faithful to his people even when they are repeatedly unfaithful to him. So if you read through Judges and think, none of these characters actually seem very good. It seems like everybody's messing up all the time. That's true. The author will tell us later in Judges, everyone was just doing what was right in their own eyes. There was no king in the land. This was not a good time in Israel's history. And so we learn that salvation is possible because God has willed to save a very unwilling people. At the same time, Judges is intended to call you and me to repentance and faithfulness to God. The author shows us how things never go well when God's people rebel against him. So God's faithfulness to us is not an excuse. It is not a license for our sinfulness, for our unfaithfulness. We've seen that sin always has consequences, even when it is forgiven sin. Yet Judges is clear that you are not capable of saving yourself. You need God to save you. You need God to send you a deliverer, a savior who is obedient to God, who is spirit-empowered and self-sacrificing. 
The only reason that Israel's history did not end during this period is because God mercifully raised up a deliverer every time Israel returned to idolatry. But what has also been clear is that even though these many deliverers you read about in Judges could temporarily relieve Israel's physical suffering at the hands of oppressing nations, they could not deliver Israel from their greatest enemy, which was their own sin. Even the judges were sinners in need of salvation. So Israel and the world would need a far greater deliverer than Gideon or Ehud or even Samson. So those are the main theological lessons that we've been learning. Yet along the way, I've also tried to draw out other gospel implications and applications, secondary themes that are still significant lessons for us to learn. One of those secondary themes is that the holy war taking place at this time was not really between Israel and the Canaanites. It was between God's spirit and man's sin. And that's still the primary war that is taking place in this world. Every other war, every other problem, every other conflict is just an outflowing of this greater spiritual battle. This is true on a global scale. This is true at an individual level. The enemy that you and I need to fight is our sin. And the power that we need to fight our sin is only God's spirit. Now, we know that God has already won this war in the world. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was God's decisive victory. But there are still battles raging. Many are still fomenting rebellion against Christ the King. Many hearts are still resisting the Spirit and clinging to sin. Even for Christians who have God's Holy Spirit, who have been cleansed of sin's power, guilt, and shame, who have personally experienced the victory of Christ in their own lives, they are still in the midst of this conflict. Because we're not yet rid of sin's presence. The Christian heart is still a battlefield. And this is why Paul wrote to Christians, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So, even for a Christian, we have the Holy Spirit. We still have a sinful flesh that we're dealing with. And in Romans chapter 6 through 8, Paul speaks about, yes, how we have freedom from sin, and yet we still need to fight sin. We must either walk according to the Spirit or to, or to the flesh. So again, Paul teaches us we have a decisive victory, but there's still an ongoing conflict. There are therefore two sides in this war, and you must choose a side. There is the side of sin, and there is the side of the Spirit. And my prayer for all of us here 
tonight is that we would side with the Spirit, and I'm going to use the story in Judges 15 to try to persuade you to side with God's Spirit and not your sin. Because the activity of the Spirit is highlighted with Samson more than with any other judge. Four times the author specifically tells us the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. So with my remaining time, I'm just going to recap the story that I read to you. And then in light of this story, offer two lessons. With the first lesson, I'll look at the Philistines and try to expose the lies of sin. Because sin will try to persuade you that it is reasonable, that it is safe, that it is an escape from suffering. And with the second lesson, I will look at Samson in the Spirit's hand and show you the power of life in the Spirit. But first, let's recap the story. If you've been here earlier in this series, you know that Israel is currently experiencing oppression at the hands of a people called the Philistines. This is their latest judgment from God for their idolatry. But in chapter 13, the angel of the Lord comes to a man named Manoah and his wife, and he tells them that she is going to conceive and bear a son, and he is going to begin to save God's people from the Philistines. But this child, this savior, was to be what's called a Nazarite, someone who was dedicated and set apart to the Lord. In particular, Nazarites were not allowed to drink wine, they could not touch dead bodies, and they could never have their hair cut. So in chapter 14, we finally meet this Nazarite, this son, this savior. But when we meet Samson, he is not wanting to kill Philistines, he wants to marry a Philistine. He touches the dead body of a lion, and he throws what would be the equivalent of a Philistine kegger. So at the wedding, Samson also tells the Philistines a riddle which they cannot answer. And Samson and 30 of the Philistines actually make a bet that the loser of the bet would have to give the winner a a lot of nice clothes and underwear. And the Philistines cannot figure out Samson's Riddle, so they get his wife to to pester Samson until he tells his wife the answer, and then she turns around and she tells the Philistines the answer, and so Samson loses the bet. Samson, as often happens with him, gets really mad. The spirit of the Lord rushes upon him, and he goes and he kills 30 other Philistines, takes their clothes and underwear, and gives it to the winner of the bet. And the last thing we're told in chapter 14 is that the father-in-law thinks that Samson is so mad at his wife that he's never going to want to see her again. So he gives Samson's wife to the best man at Samson's wedding. So then we come to chapter 15. Samson has cooled down and he decides he's going to go back to his wife and actually consummate the marriage, which he didn't do. So he gets ready probably puts on his best linen garments, and he brings his wife what every woman wants when making up with her husband. He brings her a baby goat. 
So maybe some of you women out there would like a baby goat. I, I don't think my wife would forgive me if we had a fight and said, well, honey, I know I messed up, but here's the goat you always wanted. I don't know how Samson ever had any success with the ladies. You remember earlier he called his wife a heifer, and now instead of flowers, here's a goat. But I guess that worked in those days. But when he shows up, his father-in-law again thinks, well, Samson doesn't want her. So he tells Samson, I'm sorry, I gave your wife to your best man. So he says, well, I'll make it up to you. I'll give you her sister. And he tries to present the sister as the younger, more attractive version, which, yes, is as demeaning as it sounds. But you need to remember there is a lot of things that you read, especially in the book of Judges, that are just describing what has happened. They are not prescribing how you ought to behave. So do not read Judges as a manual for how to treat women. It will not go well for you. But Samson then is again furious. So he decides to do what any of us do when we get mad, to catch 300 foxes, tie their tails together with burning torches, and set them loose in Philistia. Now, some people find it very hard to believe that Samson would be able to find and capture 300 foxes because foxes are very solitary animals and they were not that prevalent in this region, although they are there. But let me just make two comments about this. First, the exact same Hebrew word can mean foxes or jackals. Jackals are very prevalent. They're communal animals, so it would be easier to catch them. So if, if that makes this more believable for you, fine. But I think it was foxes, because it heightens the irony of what Samson is doing by tying burning torches to their tails. Because what do the tails of foxes look like? They look like burning torches. In fact, the Greek word for fox is literally torch tail. So this is how they identified them. But this brings me to my second comment. Whether it was foxes or jackals, the story is still miraculous. He caught 300 of them got their tails tied together around the torches, and the foxes went exactly where he wanted them to go. So the answer to the challenge of miracles in the Bible is not to try to make them sound more reasonable and natural. Miracles are by definition supernatural. So if they're happening, there's not going to be a natural explanation. And if the miracles in the Bible really are a stumbling block to you, and you think, it's just, this is too hard for me to believe, instead of trying to go through the Bible and either explain or explain away every miracle that you come across, my advice to you is that you just start with the most important miracle. The greatest miracle that the Bible tells you about in which the rest of the Bible depends upon. And that is the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, then you ought to believe what Jesus believed and do what Jesus says. And Jesus clearly believed 
Everything in the Old Testament was true and was about him. And I believe there is really good reason to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I actually think it's irrational and unreasonable not to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you want to know why I think that, come ask me sometime. I will make my case. The reasonableness is not why I believe the resurrection, but it supports my belief. But start there and deal with the resurrection, and then you can deal with everything else. Now back to Samson. The foxes run through Philistia with their burning torches, and they burn the stacked grain, the standing grain, and the olive orchards. This is particularly significant because the author notes at the beginning that it's the time of the wheat harvest. This is in probably around May. They are starting to gather all the food that they're going to have for a long period of time, and now it's all been destroyed. This would be economically devastating for the Philistines. And you may remember from chapter 14 that the author tells us in verse 4, God is using all of these events as an opportunity to take down the Philistines. So the Philistines lose a significant source of food and money, which, again, not surprisingly, makes them really mad. And they not only find out who did this, but they find out why. They know that Samson did this because of what his father-in-law did in giving away his wife. So the Philistines burn Samson's wife and father-in-law as an act of retributive justice. They say, because your actions led to everything of ours being burned, we are going to burn you. And now Samson is ticked off again. Because heifer comments, goat gifts aside, I really do think he loved his wife and he is sad that she has been murdered. So he goes out and he beats the Philistines to a pulp. I mean, the, the idiom probably just means the Philistines, when Samson was done, was just a pile of hips and thighs. But the story's not done. Because now the Philistines gather an army, they encamp at Judah at a place called Lehi. The Judahites are stunned and scared of why the army has come out against them because they have tried to be very good slaves and not rebel against their oppressors. So they ask the Philistines, uh, what's the problem? And the Philistines tell them the problem is Samson and they want Samson. So Judah gathers 3,000 men not to fight the Philistines, but to capture their deliverer and hand him over to their enemy. You can tell how scared they are of Samson because they sent 3,000 men to try to capture him. And they complained to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? They don't want to be delivered. They're mad at Samson. And they have rejected the Savior that God has sent them. Now, Samson doesn't fight them. He just requests that they not personally kill him. So they bind him with new ropes. They bring him to the Philistines. But when the Philistines come out against him, the ropes just fall off of Samson. He looks down, finds the jawbone of a donkey. He picks it up, and he strikes down 1,000 Philistines. 
He then writes a little ditty about it, which I assure you sounds way more clever in Hebrew than it does in English, and he goes his way. However, he's now dying of thirst. It's probably quite exhausting to take down a thousand Philistines with nothing but a jawbone. So he calls out to the Lord. The Lord answers him. The Lord brings water out of what was most likely a rock, and Samson is revived. We're told now that Samson judged Israel in the days of the Philistines for 20 years. This is not like other periods where the judge had actually delivered them. There was rest in the land for a significant period of time. It's still the days of the judges because Samson was only the beginning of the salvation against the Philistines. So what do we take away from this weird story? Well, first, consider the Philistines with me, and I hope you see the lie of sin. For the author lays out in these chapters the clear pattern of apparent successes for the Philistines that always end in disaster. In chapter 14, the Philistines think they have gotten the better of Samson. They found out the answer to the riddle. They won the bet. But this leads to, Phil to Samson going and killing 30 other Philistines. So even when they win and they think we're going to impoverish Samson, they are the ones impoverished, especially when you understand that this is what is going to lead to the burning of all their crops. Then when the Philistines think that they have dealt with the problem by burning Samson's wife and father-in-law, this just again leads to Samson beating them up. And then when they attack Judah and they get Judah to bind Samson for them, this is what leads to 1,000 Philistines being struck down with the jawbone of a donkey. And this pattern will continue all the way into chapter 16 when the Philistines think they have their greatest success. Samson loses his strength when Delilah gets him to tell her the secret of his strength. They bind him, they gouge out his eyes, they set him up at their party and humiliate him. And this, what we'll see next time, is what leads to their greatest defeat when 3,000 Philistines are killed at one time. And we need to understand that sin is effective because it is deceptive. The reason we give in to sin and temptation is because we believe that it really will give us success and pleasure in life. And for moments, it seems like it does. Sin can have fleeting success and pleasure. Sin can serve as a form of escapism. But it only lasts for a time. Pleasure fades. Consequences come. And ultimately, it will lead to a judgment that you cannot escape. Because consider Samson's wife. Why did she betray Samson in chapter 14? She betrayed Samson because those 30 Philistines threatened that they would burn her and her dad if she didn't find out the answer to the riddle. So she didn't side with God's Savior so that she could escape suffering. But what does all this lead to for her? She and her father are still burned. See, sin cannot escape judgment. 
it's always going to be judged in one way or another. And if you choose sin in order to escape earthly suffering, you'll, you'll find that you're just trading a lesser suffering for a greater suffering. It's like jumping in an active volcano to escape the heat of a candle. That, that's not a wise choice. So the woman thought it was safer to side with the Philistine nation instead of this one Israelite. And from a worldly perspective, that was the right choice. The Philistines had an army. All Samson's going to end up with is a jawbone. But don't you believe that the man who kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey could have protected his wife and her father from 30 Philistines who threatened her? So you must know that sin is not an escape from judgment. How can you escape judgment? By acting like a different Canaanite woman named Rahab. You may know the story of Rahab and the spies. Rahab lived in Jericho, that walled city. Two Israelite spies come into the city. She ends up hiding them, and this saves her life. Now again, what would the logical choice have been from an earthly perspective? She's a Canaanite. She's in Jericho. This is a well-fortified city. All they're going to see Israel do is walk around the city blowing trumpets, and at one point they're going to scream really loud. You, you would think, side with the people in the city, not the trumpeters who just like to yell. And yet by siding with Israel and Israel's God, Rahab is spared. So sin will always tell you it's the safe side, but it's the wrong side because it is the side against God. And that is not the side you want to be on. Consider again the Philistines. The descriptions of their defeat here in chapter 15 are, are intended to some degree to be comical. Just like when we learned about King Eglon in Judges chapter 2. Because sin is an attempt to mock God and God will not be mocked. And eventually God will expose the foolishness of our sin. In some ways, it's almost as if God is mocking the Philistines to teach the Israelites how foolish it is to stand against him. It's an illustration of what you read in Psalm 2, which describes the nations raging against God, plotting against his anointed, trying to overthrow God's rule. And the psalmist says of God, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord, the Lord holds them in derision. Because rebellion against God is not actually a threat to God. There is no power that can overpower him. There is no rule that can overrule him. And so to make this point, God burns down the Philistines' crops by having Samson tie literal torches to animals known as torch tails. And then God has Samson defeat the Philistines with a jawbone. Why? Well, where did the Philistines come and attack Judah? At a place called Lahi. Lahi is the Hebrew word for jawbone. So you're going to come and attack my people at jawbone? You're going to die with a jawbone. That is the power of our God. And it wasn't the jawbone of a noble creature like a lion. 
It was the jawbone of a donkey. And we all know what the other word for donkey is. You should get the point. So if you believe sin is the side of pleasure, of safety, of escape, then you have been deceived. The end of sin against God is judgment by God. So do not listen to sin's lies. Do not let it convince you like those in the days of Noah who scoffed at the promise of God's coming judgment in the flood and said, it's never going to come. The flood came. And Peter warns us in 2 Peter, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You don't want to side with sin. You want to side with God's spirit. And so instead of listening to the lies of sin, we must embrace life in the spirit. For the life of Samson is not a display of Samson's power. It is a display of God's power by his spirit. Because apart from the Holy Spirit, Samson could do nothing. I suggested last time, Samson, I highly doubt, was an obviously strong human being with lots of obvious strengths. Because everybody's wondering, where does this guy's strength come from? It clearly did not come from him. It'll be clear in chapter 16 that apart from the spirit, Samson was weak. And in the same way, you and I have no strength apart from God's spirit. But the strength we need is not to fight against Philistines. It's to fight against sin and Satan. Which is why Paul tells the Ephesians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And there's only one power that can overcome those powers. That is the power of God's spirit. And in the spirit's hand, anyone can be what Paul calls more than conquerors. So why again does the author emphasize the jawbone over and over again? It's to make clear that the power is not Samson. It is the spirit. The jawbone in Samson's hand is meant to show you the reality of what God is doing in the days of the judges. Because Samson is really nothing more than a jawbone. So saving Samson saving Israel with a jawbone is just a picture of God saving Israel through these judges. The judges are all little more than jawbones. The true Savior is God, and the saving power is his spirit. So, Christian, you need to know that sin and Satan are powerful. They are far more powerful than you are. You need to recognize the world is a scary place. There are many dangers, toils, and snares. But you must not forget that you have been given God's Holy Spirit. And too often, I think we live as if we are just powerless and weak, would be, which would be true if we were left to ourselves. But we're not. God has given us his spirit and his power is made perfect in our weakness. 
So do not forget that you have God's spirit dwelling within you. And by him, you really can fight sin and temptation. You really can resist the evil one and the evil world. The Apostle Paul says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. And John assures you, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And he who is in you is the spirit of Christ, whom Christ has given to you. This was Jesus' comfort to his disciples before he ascended to heaven. He said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And the helper is the Holy Spirit, the very same spirit who rushed upon Samson. And because of Jesus, who received the spirit in full and gives him freely, the spirit is not rushing upon Christians from time to time. The Holy Spirit dwells within the Christian forever. But this is the key. If you are to receive God's spirit, you must receive his son, who is the greater savior that judges keeps pointing us to, the one whom God sent to save you from your sin. Life in the spirit is life by faith in the son of God. For just as the Judahites rejected Samson and handed him over the Philistines with the intention that Samson would die, Jesus was rejected and handed over to the Romans, and he actually did die. But just as Israel's rejection of their Savior would eventually lead to their salvation by God's grace, so even our rejection of Jesus has led to our salvation by God's grace. Because on the cross, Jesus bore the judgment of sin that we deserve. You notice that there were 3,000 men of Judah who were sent to bind Samson. Later, 3,000 Philistines are the ones who are going to die when this Savior dies. As if to say, the judgment that those Judahites deserved was not actually poured out upon them. It was poured out on another. And this is the gospel. On the cross, God poured out his just wrath for sin, but it was not poured out upon us. It was poured out upon his son so that we might be saved. Sin cannot escape judgment, but you can escape the judgment for your sin when you trust in Jesus Christ because he bore that judgment on the cross. And when you believe in Jesus, you receive his Holy Spirit who is greater than all of your sins, all of your temptations, all of your trials, all of your fears, all of your enemies of spiritual darkness. So do not stand on the side of sin. Stand on the side of God's Spirit. For as Paul says, if God is for us, who can stand against us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that by your Spirit, you would point us 
to our Savior, who is Jesus Christ. That you would work faith within us, that we would no longer reject him, but receive him. For he is our only hope. He is our only peace. He is our only comfort. I pray for each of us now that we would trust in the Lord. And know that our judgment has been paid for on the cross. That we might know salvation in the newness of life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.